Welcome back to Restored Gospel Podcast. This week's episode, we continue with what does the Book of Mormon teach? And this week, we talk about plainness. What does the Book of Mormon teach about plainness? Its benefit, its purpose, and how wonderful it is to find the simple message buried among many, many other things that come and distract us. We hope you enjoy. Oh my gosh, I was just thinking, a couple summers ago, one of my sons and I took a father-son trip to Washington, D.C., and I'd never, I'd been in the Baltimore area for work over years of my life, never taken time to go to Washington and go through all this his, historical Smithsonian's things like that. I love that place. Oh my gosh. So we got in, we got up really early one day because we knew if we didn't get there early, we wouldn't get a chance to even get in line, let alone see it. But we got in a place to go uh, to where they have the Constitution, the original paper document, the Constitution oh, wow. of the United States. And, you know, of course, it's a long line and you go through metal detectors and then you go through a series of hallways and then you get checked again and then you get in this line where there's this thing that looks like this green dome with like four inch thick bulletproof glass and in there is this document that was written by men which has these ideals that are going to be hopefully the foundation for a nation right to live and prosper and and how that was so not only protected but built up in our everyone in our society knows that's a special thing this whole building was built to present it and here i'm thinking Mike, here we've got in our hands this precious word from this perfect God that came, that made it through time purely to us, that's even more pure than any document that men in our nation have ever written. Even though those... Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We are two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity, and we welcome you into that conversation. It has been a couple weeks that we have been off the air. Uh, for those that don't know, my wife and I both came down with covid and um, because of our great love for Corey, we didn't want to infect him, so we kept him out of the house, and it's been real nice the last few days. We've had all the windows open and the attic fan on, and we've aired out the house, but uh, we've both been symptom-free now for about a week other than just being tired, so I think we're safely back together, although we are a good 10 feet apart here or 8 feet apart at this long table in the basement. But um, <laughs> Well, that's always uh, the way it is, too, but I feel like we're getting reacquainted, Mike. You, know, you had to refresh yourself with a sound system i think yeah we had uh, my poor little apple was completely out of energy at zero percent so we had to let her charge back up but um it's been yeah it's been kind of crazy we both feel very blessed that we neither one of us got any of the bad respiratory stuff um just still got a little cough or whatever but uh 
my wife for things going on two weeks and she can't taste her food. Uh-huh. Um, I had a friend say it's been four months for her and sure her taste hasn't oh, come back. Oh, you're kidding. Well, everyone has to know this. Mike texts me when he's in the midst of this illness saying, is there any point in living or continuing life if you can't taste what you're eating? Yeah, it's like, it's like you lock down, you know, every nothing's going on anyway. And it's the small little, uh, you know, trying beef jerky recipes. And when you, when you can't, you know, taste what you're making it's like oh, uh, what are, what's left yeah i guess i'll binge watch a say by the bell or something on tv well here we are so we're back and doing a podcast which feels really good it's been too long so i had uh i had some limbs that came down with our last big windstorm so i thought well i'll have the tree company come out it's been four or five years they haven't thinned out our, we've got several large trees in our yard and so I had uh, I had Carl Heath, a uh, great arborist. We've used him before. He came out to look at our trees, and he walked into the backyard. He said, oh, that's dead. We have a, a good 80-foot Catawba tree in the backyard. I mean, it had to be all of eight feet in diameter, if not bigger. I, I couldn't believe the size of that stump when they carried it onto the truck. But uh, he said, that's going to that's gonna fall. I mean, you got to get that taken down it's it where it was positioned it could have hit any number of houses or buildings and and it's a huge tree so i thought you know we were going to spend a few hundred bucks on thinning out some trees and just spent so much more Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we had to take down our fence to get the bucket tree in he Mm -hmm. says it was because it was eaten out it wasn't safe to even climb on really and and um Mm -hmm. So they came in this week and it was interesting to watch they got that down within a day and then cut up all the wood and hauled it off but our backyard i have all of these shrubs around the house and the back fence line like 12 of them we've been wanting to take out these huge evergreen bushes that get too big because i never trim them you know Mm. so that's all gone and (laughs) the backyard looks bare so that was that so we brought in some topsoil yesterday and i was spreading it and after 30 minutes i was just drenched i sat down and that's all i did yesterday so yeah still get tired out a little easy but Mm. we've got a brand new backyard now missing a huge tree i'm gonna miss that tree it had Mm. a lot of nice shade and stuff but that was the excitement for me this week well well glad you're back on your feet mike i know you're you're hit pretty good there for a little while we i got up this morning and took a walk just a little half mile walk around the block try to get the juices flowing and i was thinking you know Corey, during this covid time what what are we what are we doing as saints what what should we be doing what can we be doing i often talk to my wife and i'll just say something like i don't even feel a desire to read today or whatever but you know when you think about it and step back what's the purpose of reading the scriptures and um listening to podcasts about the lord or studying we say we need to study the scriptures there has to be a point and, and it should always be in the front of our mind of why why am I doing this and what is the ultimate goal? And some things I've been listening to lately, I think part of that goal is, or the main goal is to come to know him, to really come to know him as he is, as our savior, as our father, as our creator, and not just to, to learn things about things. And so I never want this podcast to be just a intellectual course or study um, but, but to help really bring people to the Christ, you know, and, to and, the, and you know what, I think you're, you're in good hands there. I don't think we're going to uh, push that boundary. Yet. <laughs> no, there's, there's much more, uh, 
<laughs> better people at that. But um, I was thinking, what 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 should the what should we be doing as a people right now? What what's as we sit, you know, in our homes every night and try not to go out and reduce our interaction, what can we be doing? Or what, what do you think God looks down at us and says, here's some time to do this? Mm-hmm. Are we coming closer to him? I, I feel like I'm treading water a lot of the time, just trying to get through one day after another. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I had thoughts about something like that this morning, and and you touching on it kind of brings it back to mind that, one of the things in my journey right now is just realizing this truth of the Book of Mormon um, gives so much life edifying information. I mean, it really explains why we're here and what our purpose is. And and I gain inspiration when I read the testimony of the Nephites who knew that Jesus was coming, knew that his kingdom was going to be on earth, and yet they would never witness any of that in their mortal lifetime. But yet it said, we, we talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we live as though he's mm-hmm. already among us. And, and that is so inspiring to me that, you know, they had this, I think, figured out how to, as the scriptures say, endure to the end. And, and that idea of enduring to the end is just a life principle that um, I, I put it in this perspective. And this is the thought I had this morning. I remember reading a testimony, I think it was John McCain if not, it was someone like him. Nah, it was actually another uh, military person with some experience with prisoner of war experience who talked about this um, idea of when they were prisoners in these prison camps, they, some guys did okay and some guys did not. I mean, it was harsh for everyone, obviously. There's no real doing okay, right, And if you're in a prisoner of war. But they, they talked about how the people who had this idea that, hey, we are going to be released by Christmas. We're going to be free. We're going to be out of here. This is going to be done. All this stuff's going to be behind us. I just know it. You know, they would say this stuff. He said, those were the guys who suffered the worst. They would be the ones who, you know, sometimes just didn't make it mentally, emotionally. Mm -hmm. He said, the people who had the longer-term attitude, like, you know what? I don't know when relief's coming, but I know that each day I'm going to try to keep my mind focused. I'm going to try to not let anger overcome me. I'm going to try to remember my family and do these things. Those are the people who made it, you know, and, and that attitude along that journey of enduring was the difference. He said, that's, that's very, very interesting, right? With, uh, with all the experiences we've heard of people having probably in the last year, there's been several more, you know, this is happening and this is coming. And, um, and so when you say that, I was thinking that's interesting. I was, I can, I was pulling into Walmart to go get some groceries yesterday and I had this thought, I don't know why, but I thought about father, son, um, team that came to our little, little branch there in Ohio. And, they had a preaching series one week and I was just fixated on this. They were both very well spoken and, and you know, the one was talking, you know, Zion will be here within the next 10 years. And and I know we've probably heard different things like that through the years. We, I was so excited as a little boy. I was so excited. I couldn't believe the thought of Jesus being with Jesus in that short of a time period, you know, and I thought, Oh, wow. And, you know, and along the way we've heard different things, but, we do kind of set ourselves up, don't we, when we think like we just if I can just get to this right. through this election, you know, things will fall apart, the Lord will come back and who knows what's what's gonna happen. I I do think the time is well much closer than it was when I was a little boy. I mean yeah. the world's it's, so much darker. 
Well, it's exactly however many years it's been closer yeah. in that sense, right? <laughs> well, you know, this is, so we've been talking about what the Book of Mormon teaches, and, and this is why I'm so excited is because for me, I've discovered personally that the Book of Mormon has had clear messages for us uh, in our day about how to anticipate and what to anticipate future events being. And we as a people, and I can't say this about everyone, but I think in general have either not been aware of some of these messages or we have kind of uh, substituted messages that have come out of the restoration testimonies as the indication of future events. And I'll clarify this in a second versus what the Book of Mormon has been telling us all along. In other words, we've kind of used recent testimony as well. It's just as good as any other testimony. And it's like, it's, it's not true. We've, we've got the Bible, you know, the words of the Jews, we've got the words of Joseph and we've got the words of people in latter days. Um, they're all supposed to agree if they're all inspired, but yet the book of Mormon was given for a very specific reason to us in our day. Um, and it's not always a reason I think people think it was because God wanted us to have the pure doctrine, the pure gospel, so we wouldn't stumble. That's the word the Nephite, that Nephi writes. He says, hey, I see the Gentiles stumble over plain and precious truths, and God's going to be merciful to them and bring that message back. What's that look like, stumbling for the Gentiles? Yeah, so, you know, here's, here's a good question. Something I, I was thinking about, too, is that it doesn't mean – fall flat on your face and slide backwards into hell stumble just means you know if you're tri walking down a trail and you trip you stumble well that hurts doesn't mean that you fell off the trail right but stumble can mean i think to be spiritually confused or to get some of it right and not all of it right but god wants us to have this straight clear path without stumbling blocks on it yeah and it's notions of men i think are the stumbling blocks we I'm listening to a series right now that's really opened my eyes to the character of God and the first time that he in, reveals himself in the Bible. And throughout this series, um, it's been quite clear to me that understanding what the Hebrews understood about who God was and how they understood him and then how they were able to interact and put trust in him is so uh, united together. Because yes. when you don't see God, when you see God at in any way, shape, or form as part of your image that you've made him, you you do yourself a disservice, and also you don't have the ability to place, I believe, saving your faith in him uh, to the point where it can save you and get you through this, wor this world, this probationary time. And so it's really necessary to continually have revelation come to you on who God is and his character and maybe we'll get into some of that, but that's very important. And so when you don't see him like that, you stumble. And I was thinking of, you You referenced a few episodes ago, one of the teachers I think we both listened to, Stephen Lawson, you know, a great, really great expositor of the scriptures. And yet there's, you know, he buys into it, as do a lot of uh, Protestants or evangelicals, the predestination um, understanding because of a verse in the Bible that really changes to me the nature of God. Now they would say no, and it'd probably be an interesting discussion. And um, but that really, um, to me, that's a stumbling. That's stumbling because we're not seeing God as who He really is Amen. and who He intended to re how He intended to reveal Himself to us. Yeah, yeah, and 
these little things come up right through the years, these collegiate uh, education seminary theories that build upon each other through the years by different men that are well-known and well-renowned and respected. Right. And sometimes the stumbling comes from just what you said, where it's like, okay, we've got a a set of scriptures that were written by people who not only spoke a different language, they thought about things differently. Their mindset was different than ours. And we're trying to take those words and think we understand what they meant by everything. You know, this whole idea, like you point out of this predestination, this Calvinist idea is I think nothing more or less than simply words that got translated into the English that don't carry the true meaning, which have now perpetuated themselves upon each other. And I've got a great example I want, I want to share. Maybe we can fit it in today on something just like this that stated in the Bible, stated differently in the Book of Mormon, and I'll leave it as a mystery as to which one is right. But it's all based on incorrect translation into English. And, and so... Um, <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't leave everyone hanging on that. But it, but what I wanted to get to is just a couple of this idea with what you just said, Mike. So one of these ideas in the Book of Mormon that I was never taught or never heard of in the go ye and teach, which not only did I hear as a child and as a young adult, but also even helped teach it on missionary outings and cottage meetings, I never heard the words mercy and justice, you know, talked about. And you talk about this character of God. Well, the Book of Mormon, you know, I've realized you cannot tell the story of salvation without telling how we're in the grasp of justice. God wants to apply mercy, but the only way mercy works is our repentance. Now, that's Alma 19 in a nutshell, uh, chapter 19 from the RLDS version. But it's like, we haven't been trained to tell that story that way. We've been trained to say, well, and see, this is what the Book of Mormon, well, this is what Nephi means when he says the Gentiles stumble. We don't get the basic understanding of why we need a Savior, for instance. You know, we're under this grasp of justice, meaning right. consigned to be separated from God forever. God wants us back with him. The only way it works is an eternal, infinite sacrifice made on our behalf, then our heart has to change towards him. Right? And it's and it's something for us to try to understand that, looking at it with our brains and looking backwards, but it's something else to be brought up in the very beginning, understanding that culture, that mercy. And our friends at the Bible Project, um, I call them my friends through the interwebs. They don't know that I exist out in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, but they, they've come to that. They would really want to be friends with you if they met you, though. They would. Um, they, <laughs> they're, they're coming to that. They, they've flushed that out out of the Hebrew, that that was the whole mercy and justice. Yeah, and, and, and through difficult scripture passages, too, they come to that conclusion. Yeah, the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew language, there were so many less words than we have in ours. And yeah. so... And people might say, well, why didn't God just have the Bible translated as as it should have been with the correct words? And that's that's an interesting concept other than it was part of the plan, I think, that men did stumble. And he allowed he allowed that. But, but the Book of Mormon comes forth as a fresh, new record. And by, as Scripture teaches, by simple, small means, God does marvelous, mighty things. And this is the example of it. You know, Nephi writes, he said, when the word came forth by the disciples in Jesus' day, it was pure. It was the right word. You know, and at some point in time it was written. So, his, But we change through time, too. Our, the way we use language changes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, our, our idea of, of, here's interesting, our idea of faith I, I, this was flushed out this week in, in an episode I was listening to. Amazing. Um, they, they were talking about how this atheist um, 
um, doctor said that he wanted to push that Christianity is a mental disorder because you believe in something that can't be proved and you set your whole life around it and it's like a big delusion or illusion and they said that's interesting they said yeah the bible would say that as well <clears throat> and i thought what they said the bible would say that as well that that if you believe in something you can't know it to be real that that would be odd and that's not that was not what they understood about the character of god he didn't want them what they said to have blind faith you know Sometimes I think we picture ourselves on our knees by our bed with our eyes shut tight and our fists clenched. Just, I'm trying to exercise faith and muster up belief in you, God. I know I can't see you. I don't know you. I can't touch you. I don't know that you're real, but I'm trying to believe, you know, I want you to be. They said that's, that blind faith is not what was meant. And that's though God has been revealing himself to man through time. He wants us to say, this is who I am. Solidify this in your mind. This is how I've dealt with people. Look at my consistency, my consistency through the whole picture, the whole word. And when we think it's inconsistent that he was this mean, angry God in the Old Testament, that's just, that's not the, that's a story that's been changed through time. And you really see this consistent mercy and uh, forgiveness, even when the bride, his early bride, left him. You know, he performed that marriage at Mount Sinai, and be, they became his covenant people, and then they turned on him right away, and he consistently shows mercy through the ages. Mm, mm, exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful picture that we've, again, stumbled over. Stumbled, yeah. Yeah, and this, this whole idea that God doesn't want us to stumble is in, the, in a day to come, you know, getting back to how we— we started the conversation about, you know, how do we endure and do these things? One of the ways is to have this hope that the scriptures are going to do exactly what they've said. They're going to bring us to this point, as the scripture says, where we all see eye to eye. And this, this Book of Mormon is part of that process where this happens. This is, you, you know, you go around the world and there's so many different religions, and there's so many different factions and even, you know, just divisions within Christianity alone. But, there's a promise that the world is going to see eye to eye. And that's, this is one of the things, I guess, to look forward to. So when we received this Book of Mormon, we weren't just supposed to say, hey, we believe in Revelation and we are God's restored church. And look, we have another book of Scripture and we have our own books of prophecy. And this makes us the true church and we're going to build the kingdom. So Come gather to Jackson County and be here now because bad things are going to happen. That, in a nutshell, is kind of how this restoration uh, message was has been promoted, at least among conservatives, for, for more than a generation. But you look at all the hundreds of factions that are broken off in time since the days of Joseph Smith of groups within the restoration, and pretty much probably every one of those had this vision that they thought they were going to see Zion. Like, they were, it was imminent. In fact... If you look at the Times and Seasons publication, which was the church publication in the Nauvoo period, just before Joseph's martyrdom, uh, people thought that was the millennium. I mean, you can go through and you right. read these people saying, hey, we're 14 years into the millennium. They thought it started with the revelation of the Book of Mormon. And they were totally misguided. But the problem is, I've realized that there were many ideas that have kind of promulgated through time from that era that still follow us around. And one of them, and this is going to slap some people in the face, I'll need to explain it, but 
this idea that Zion was just about to be here, or if we just get our act together, we'll have Zion now. That is a misunderstanding of various scriptures, and the Book of Mormon never taught it that way. The, the Book of Mormon's message is this. Zion comes when all the covenants are fulfilled, and the covenants being fulfilled are all told in the Book of Mormon. The covenants don't start with um, uh, the Book of Mormon being revealed to Joseph Smith. I mean, we've got this book called The Doctrine and Covenants, but the the, the covenants, the real covenants, not, I'm not saying those aren't real. I'm saying that the original covenants started with you know Adam and Enoch and then Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Lehi. All these forefathers had promises made concerning their lineage, their 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 offspring, their their families to come, and that these promises of Zion were going to be fulfilled one day back to their own people. And the message of the Book of Mormon is God hasn't forgotten the covenants that he made with these people. And so what this whole Book of Mormon is right now in process of time, it's fulfilling the covenants. Whether we realize it or not, that's what God's purpose has been from the beginning. Now, I'm stating these things without giving a lot of scripture. There's a ton of scripture to, to kind of back this up from the Book of Mormon. But, but this ties back in with your, your comment already in our podcast and our previous session where we talked about Enos and his prayer and how his life was changed because God wipes away his sin and his guilt with it. And then he has this compassion that his people will know this same relationship with God and this pureness and this uh, freedom from guilt and sin. And then he's granted that through prayer. And then we find in this very short chapter, his prayer goes beyond his days to the coming generations of his people. And he prays specifically that the record that he's tap-tapping into the continuation of Nephi's plates will someday reach his people again so that they can know this truth. Because he's already living in a day where a lot of the people around him have fallen away. We're working hard to try to bring people to Christ, and they're not. You know, He sees this effort you know, somewhat dwindling at some point in time. Well, here's part of the slap of the, in the face, I believe, is that we have told ourselves in the Restoration that it's our job to, to build Zion, that God restore the church so we can have Zion. God, all the facts individually are true. God restored the church, and Zion is going to come to pass. But the relationship between the two isn't exactly what the Book of Mormon teaches. And I know that might sound strange to some people, but the Book of Mormon teaches that God, yes, restored the church. He's actually restored the church many times to his people. Whenever we have the presence of God's Spirit and the power and the gifts of God and in the in the full understanding of his doctrine, his church is there, right? right? He's done that. He's done that throughout the Nephites' time. He's resurrected it from time to time from people who fell away and the people come back. But the point is this, and I'm not minimizing what's happened in the last day. The Book of Mormon teaches that there was a stepping stone that was going to happen with the Book of Mormon's progress of its return to its own people, the Nephites were of this lineage of the house of Israel, specifically of the tribe of Joseph. Joseph has this promise that his seed will never perish, his, his descendants will never perish, and someday they'll come back to him. Well, the writers of the Nephites put two and two together, and then God reveals it to them that, hey, it's the very words that Nephi was commanded, make this set of plates, it's for a wise purpose in me. It's that record that's going to bring his descendants back 
to a powerful spiritual relationship with God that doesn't exist right now. And how is that going to happen? Well, God says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this record and I'm going to parade it through the nation of the Gentiles first. Let them have full knowledge. Let them know about me, my love, my compassion, my mercy, my justice, my plan. And, and he said, and this is so that they can have full access to me and the Holy Ghost and the gift of the Spirit, just like in my day, just like when I was preaching and teaching in Jerusalem. I want the same thing for the Gentiles because he said, I didn't go get to visit the Gentiles, but I said I'd send my spirit to them. I'd send my word. So this is fulfilling that. But the promise is it didn't just end there. And that's where we in the restoration have to expand our vision and our hope as we're waiting for things things to happen, as we like to use that term. The hope is that the wor- the covenants are fulfilled, that the word returns back to God's people the way the Book of Mormon is promised. It's the words from the dust. It's these promises that were made to the, the direct lineage, the direct descendants of these people. Some of them don't even know who they are. We don't know who they are. But that the promises begin to unfold, the big things that we've been waiting for in the world, not when the Gentiles got the Book of Mormon, but when the original house of Israel gets the Book of Mormon. And you mentioned it. I just want to flush it out and or draw attention to Enos. <clears throat> Enos and this promise was made because he was forgiven of his sins and felt clean. And so he was brought into this joyful, joyful relationship with his creator. And he wanted his people to have that relation, that. that relationship. So it's not that about above all. <clears throat> that yeah. above all. It's right. not about knowing. You know, the end goal is not just to get, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a group of people to know that they are the covenant people or to realize that they're from the house of Israel, but it's for a group of people to have their hearts completely changed by by knowing God as He is, by understanding Him through His pure Word. And it's always, you know, I was pondering on the words of my father or I remembered what I had been told and, and um, that pure teaching of who God is and what he wants for us, that's the, the joy. That's the message that goes hand in hand with, you know, returning the records and the knowledge of God and Christ to people. It's not, it's not anything less than that. It's, it's the ability to be changed. He was motivated by his soul being cleansed and forgiven. That's it. That's the walk in Christ. That's the life in Christ. And that's that's the message that God restored the church to teach, how to have hope in the journey, how to endure, how to how to overcome the spiritual darkness and live a life full of light in this in this world. You know, one of the things I love so much about the book of Mormon, again, these are new thoughts for me. I'm not I wasn't born with this. It's just through starting to understand, and literally, um, as we've talked before, once you understand the Hebrew mindset was parallelism, they were looking for parallel ideas. When you read the Book of Mormon, it becomes new when you just start looking for parallel ideas, right? Well, one of these great parallelisms is brought out in Lehi's teaching to his children. 
And I'm guessing he's actually quoting from Zenus, who was the prophet who gives us the parable of the olive tree. But Zenus is actually quoted in several places in the Book of Mormon. But what he talks about is the opposition in all things. Now, we've talked about that. Yeah, there's an opposition in all things, and it's not just, you know, to try to teach us Newtonian physics. But it says, so righteousness can occur. And the reason this is important to understand is because this whole idea Lehi is teaching his children, which just dawned on me the other day, he was teaching the opposition in all things so they could be prepared how to live the battle of life. In other words, he didn't want them to have this incorrect notion that, well, hey, you know, life should all be good, but there's this dark thing and, and it's really bad out there, but, you know, just kind of hope for the good thing. I mean, maybe I'm not saying it right, but what I'm trying to say is he was preparing their mind to see the balance. He, he, he said, no, God creates good, and, and God allows this evil to exist, and we're in the middle to make decisions so that our will is the thing that determines our outcome. If we will to do good, good things will happen. If we will to do he, – he, he's like – he's not trying to sugarcoat life, I guess. He's saying, no, there is a force of, of darkness that's as – in our world, it's as strong as the force of good. But if your mind and will and heart change, the force of good has a much greater effect and can overcome the darkness. And he's he's teaching that how to for that to happen. Here's where I'm concerned for our people that we don't see life that way. We don't see the balance that God has been telling from the beginning. You know, this heaven and earth is one. All this darkness and evil and good and bad and all this stuff is one, and we're placed in the middle to decide. What we have to guard against, and and and, and, I, and I know this personally, I know the struggle people have in the restoration, is that some people think, all we have to do is hope for the kingdom and all this bad stuff goes away. It's like, God wanted us to kind of learn how to endure through the bad stuff with, with life skills based on scriptural principle. It wasn't just, let me just hide, let me just put blinders on, let me just pretend all this bad doesn't exist, and, and then the kingdom's going to answer all my, be the answer to all my problems, right? You know, I, I know people who've done, you know, they, they haven't wanted to work or study or get educated or do anything because they kind of think, well, I just have to wait for the kingdom, that's all. And it's like, that's contrary to everything Lehi taught his children on his deathbed. Was He was teaching them, no, the adversary is real. God is real. There's a force of darkness. There's a force of good. Your place, and he, he compares it all back to the Garden of Eden. Here's this beautiful place, but there's this choice. You know, you can make the choice of one or the other. And, and God's teaching us. Through every day of our life right now, whether there's COVID-19 or who's who got elected or who said they got elected or whatever, all these struggles around us right now, he's saying, no, it always comes back to choice. There's always going to be a force of good present. There's always going to be a force of evil present. Your job is to learn how to discern the difference through my spirit. That's our daily task. And, and then in the end, to try to make the best choices with the information we have. And, and be strong and grow and learn and, and, and help others along the way through that. Not foster this idea that, well, bad things are going to happen. And when bad things happen, we know good things right around the corner. And then just kind of wait on the sidelines. You know, I, I don't know if I'm stating that right. But that's, that's kind of what I think should be if, you know, if our mission on this podcast was uh, to provide some education for the restoration, it would be that, is to learn how to live, you know, in a, in a powerful, victorious way every day for Christ. 
and in the midst of strife and suffering. So Enos, so the last episode we talked about Enos um, and the promise made to him that that a knowledge of of God and of Christ would come back to his people. Yeah. What does the Book of Mormon teach about that that process? Excellent question. <laughs> so let's Enos kind of stands on the shoulders of prophets who came before him. Right. And one of them was um, was Lehi himself. Lehi on his deathbed is not only talking about the opposition in all things, but he mentions the covenants to his children and he and he starts he introduces this topic by talking about Joseph, this Joseph of Egypt. Now Lehi has a son named Joseph. And in the second book of Nephi, chapter uh, 2, if you go there, uh, and you can also go, if you want to, if you're in the LDS version, it's going to be the second book of Nephi, chapter 3, verse 5. Well, it's interesting. In 2 Nephi 2, verse 9, our LDS version, he talks about how the Messiah was going to be manifest to his seed in the latter days. And I love this term. It says, in the spirit of power. In the spirit of power. So the the context, Lehi is talking to his son Joseph, and he's saying, Now Joseph, my last born, who I've brought out of the wilderness of my affliction, brought my the wilderness of my affliction. May the Lord bless thee forever, for thy seed shall not utterly be destroyed. Well, so right here, Joseph, his son, is hearing from his father Lehi. Lehi's been reading these brass plates that they brought from Jerusalem. And in the brass plates are testimonies that we don't have in our Bible. Some of them are written by Joseph of Egypt himself. There's collections of records that, you know, just things we've never had our eyes on yet. And in that collection of records, the Joseph of Egypt said, was told this. He said, Joseph truly saw our day. This is Lehi telling his son, hey, I'm naming you Joseph, by the way, after this guy, great Joseph, who was the one who was sold as a slave as a child, grew up in Egypt, became the powerful one who saves his family and his nations. He said, that Joseph, he said, he saw what was going to happen to us. And he's saying he understood, you know, this family, Lehi, from Jerusalem is going to someday cross these waters and carry records and your and they are part of your offspring, Joseph. This is why it was important. Why Lehi, by the way, had the records. the The plates of brass told him a few different things. One of them was the lineage of his fathers. And as he's reading these plates that Nephi gets from Laban, he discovers he's a pure descendant of Joseph. Well, this plays back into the story of the Book of Mormon. And right here, Joseph the son is said, "Your people will," he said in verse nine. That Jesus Himself is going to manifest Himself to your people someday in the Spirit of Power. Now that's how this—that's the big kind of climax of the story. So, how back to your question: How does Enos foresee this happening? This process of time was going to require the Gentiles to be involved, and when we say Gentiles, we're talking about the people to whom the Book of Mormon came. Joseph Smith, these, this, our, our generation, our church, our, our process was supposed to be the ones who would take this record back 
to the people. And Nephi writes about this. He says, hey, I see that the, the Gentiles will bring the record to some of my people, right? But the problem is, he says, but I also see the Gentiles are going to reject the record. So it's like we got this, this, double, this conflict now where God brings this record to us. He wants it to go back to Joseph's people to fulfill this covenant so they can have this spirit of power knowing Jesus in the day to come. But he sees eventually the very vehicle, us, who are supposed to take it, we stumble over ourselves again. And so another method happens. Well, what is that? The scriptures don't really say. But where some of the scripture gets answered is in the second book of Nephi, uh, chapter 11. And and let's 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 talk about a couple of Hebrew words, and let's get into how this is going to come to the Gentiles real quickly. Um, one of them, I, I just got to throw this out. I said I've been there's some Hebrew stuff that's really cool. And so one of them is in this um, in the Hebrew thought. I was reading this week and learned this. The the rabbis divided scripture up into four groupings when you talked about how it taught information. And, and I'm going to try to pronounce these words. One of them was sod, which was the highest level, the secret level. You might call these uh, deeper spiritual understandings, things like the book of Revelation, highly symbolic, very uh, maybe not always apparent what the meaning is. Sod, that was the secret level. Now down from that, there was this group called Drash, meant allegory. So an allegory might be a little more obvious because <clears throat> the, the pieces of the story relate to something we can relate to. So Drash was allegory. Sod was secret, deep. Uh, down from allegory was uh, Remez, which meant to hint. These are, these are um, words and things that are a little bit more obvious. Um, but the last one was called Peshat. And Peshat was the lowest level, the simplest level of Scripture. Well, the reason I share these words in the Hebrew, you know what the translated word of Peshat means? Mm -mm. Plain. 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 And this is what Nephi's favorite word is. He says, I speak plain unto you, right? He starts off this second book of Nephi, chapter 11, with this discourse saying, after he's just quoted two chapters of Isaiah, he said, hey, my people don't understand the ways of the Jews because they didn't live there. But he said, but I'm going to speak plain. Peshat. I'm going to speak Peshat, right? And he says, I glory in Peshat. I glory in plainness. Now, this word plainness doesn't exist anywhere in the King James, of course, right? But isn't it interesting? That's the meaning of the translated word that rabbis would use to say, no, there's a scriptural level where it's just plain. It plain. can't be disputed. And Nephi says, I don't write in any of these other hard-to-understand things. I write in the plain ways. So, so when he's talking about these, um, these words, he says, uh, regarding Isaiah, he relates these words of Isaiah. He says in verse uh, 5, he says, Because the words of Isaiah are not plain unto you, nevertheless they are plain unto all those who are filled with the, filled with the spirit of prophecy. And then he goes, I'm going to prophesy according to the plainness, which has been with me from the time that we came out of uh, Jerusalem with my father. 
For behold, my soul delighteth in plainness. Isn't it interesting that, I mean, it's like I said, this, this word plainness doesn't exist anywhere in the English versions of the, of the Bible, yet it's the exact right word that the Hebrews used to describe the level of Scripture which cannot be misunderstood. And, and so what he goes on to explain, he takes Isaiah's words, which were written on maybe the sod level, or okay, the highest level, or uh, the secret level, um, or maybe the allegorical. Yeah, and, well, and he puts it in the plane. Look, look at verse seven. He says, "Behold, my like you, you read this part. My soul delighteth in plainness." Think about that poetic little verse right there. My soul delighteth in plainness. I don't. I don't know what. Uh, have you? If I was to say my soul delighteth in, it would be a lot of things, but I don't know that it would ever be plainness. Yeah, that, that's yeah. But but look at the follow up. Unto my people that they may what learn learn exactly. And uh, like we said at the beginning, this this isn't an intellectual exercise. Learn what learn learn about who God is and and what his desire is for you and the more and the more you see that I I hope the more you fall in love with him and just want to be with this awesome creator not not to be afraid of being damned to hell though that that's one side of it that that certainly is what we're being saved from um, from God and his justice but wanting to be with him, wanting to be with him, just desiring to be with him, no matter what else happens, I just want to be with you. And, you know? and, and to use that word Nephi just wrote that you stated, to delight in that, to just enjoy that. What do you think it means when he says, uh, according to the plainness which has been with me from the time that I came out from Jerusalem with my father, do you do you think that among the wickedness that was happening that God was going to lead God to destroy that city, that Nephi was I don't know what was going on there. If like if if all of their dealings with deity was in this higher level, or uh, you know, uh, ceremonies, and you know, we saw when Jesus came and how how harsh he was on the Pharisees and the leaders of the church that had made the gospel about everything but the plainness, you know. Oh, and so yeah. so it's like he says when he leaves that when he leaves that he says. I I, uh, I prophesy according to the plainness which has been with me from the time that I came out of Jerusalem. Yeah. I think there's a that language there that come out from is showing something that that changed that had to be happened for for plainness to come forth. He, they had to leave the establishment of the time, the wickedness, to come back to the plainness. Yeah, and I think it was for Nephi and Lehi kind of all at the same time where it all came together on this journey because. You know, Lehi was this prophet who, remember, when he's still in Jerusalem, he has this vision seeing this kind of bright person come down and 12 others with him. And then later, Nephi gets the same vision in the mountain. This is before they've even come over on the boat, right? And then all of a sudden, now they've got these plates of Isaiah. And this, what Nephi is about to explain are the words that his people had had for a couple hundred years, and they didn't realize now it was all being fulfilled, part of it in Lehi's very family, that God was explaining in very poetic, harder-to-understand terms about how the Jews would crucify Jesus, how Jesus was the eternal God, how this eternal God would have to be the sacrifice for mankind's sin, and it had to be infinite, and how 
God's people were going to be punished because they were going to be because they would crucify that God, and yet in God's mercy, He would bring them back to the truth through the very records that Nephi was now tapping into these metal plates. And when you say the plainness, since we came out of Jerusalem, on that eight years in the wilderness and these early years in America, all of a sudden it's all making sense, and now He can yeah. see it twenty twenty. The neat thing is what what did what was the when you look at the story of Lehi and his family leaving Jerusalem, one of the major, major components of that is you have to go back and get the plain word. You have to go back and get the – so you wonder, you know, how was that word being manipulated or looked over or glossed over or ignored at the time or even changed that he says go back, get the original record, the brass plates of the word, bring it with you. And then the next thing you see is from the time I, I came out of that area – that came out of Jerusalem, I, uh, I have plainness. Well, it's interesting because if you, if you take that and you jump ahead now generations to Alma 17, you find that he's almost getting ready to pass the record keeping on to his oldest son, Helaman. And in this process, <laughs> since I was up in the wee hours this morning, have a chance to read, this is pretty current. Um, what Alma does in Alma 17, I never noticed before, is he goes through each of the records and he talks about the plates of brass, which were apparently still in his possession. He talks about the plates of Nephi, which Alma's son is now going to have to continue. And he talks about the record of Ether, the 24 plates of gold that he's going to have to maintain. And he also talks about this ball of directors, uh, the, the direct, the Liahona, we would call it. All these must have been in his possession. And he makes a beautiful comparison to the to the physical direction it gave the people so that it wouldn't starve and they'd know how to get through the wilderness to the same parallel in a spiritual sense so we wouldn't spiritually starve and so we'd find eternal life. He ties all this together. But the, the point being, in this process, even Alma says these words. He said, I can't tell you why all these records are going to come. It's a why, or for what they're going to serve. It's a wise purpose in God. All I know is we need to keep them, and who knows, but someday they might be the means to bring back our people. And then he ties it back into, remember the Zoramite story? This is where, you know, we we were talking in Alma 16, the, uh, the Zoramites who had been cast out of their uh, churches because they were poor, and the other people were propping themselves up on the altar, talking about how they were going to be the ones saved. And this is where they're teaching how Jesus is the one sweet above all that is sweet, mm-hmm. pure that is all above pure. That's the context that Alma and his sons just left. They were on that missionary trip together. Well, he mentions in this process, he said, and you've seen how these records have already converted thousands of our brethren. You know, we were preaching to them from Zenos and Moses and Zenic and these other people. He's referring to all these people. He's saying, you've seen what these plates have done for our own people, he said, but there's a greater purpose in the future, and I don't know what that is yet. And and I was thinking about it this week, Mike, when we hold the scripture in our hand, oh my gosh, I was just thinking, a couple summers ago, one of my sons and I took a father-son trip to Washington, D.C., and I'd never, I'd been in the Baltimore area for work over years of my life, never taking time to go to Washington and go through all this his, his historical Smithsonian's things like that. I love that place. Oh my gosh! So we got in, we got up really early one day because we knew if we didn't get there early, we wouldn't get a chance to even get in line, let alone see it. But we got in a place to go 
uh, to where they have the Constitution, the original paper document, the Constitution oh, wow. of the United States. And, you know, of course, it's a long line, and you go through metal detectors, and then you go through a series of hallways, and then you get checked again, and then you get in this line where there's this thing that looks like this green dome with, like, four-inch-thick bulletproof glass. And in there is this document that was written by men which has these ideals that are going to be hopefully the foundation for a nation, right? To live and prosper. And, and how that was so not only protected, but built up in our, everyone in our society knows that's a special thing. This whole building was built to present it. And here I'm thinking, Mike, here we've got in our hands, this precious word from this perfect God that came, that made it through time purely to us, that's even more pure than any document that men in our nation have ever written, even though those words were inspired too. I mean, inspired by the same God. But we've got hundreds of pages, not just one piece of paper, that are as precious and pure, that tell us how to live, that tell us how to come back to this Savior. And they're right here in our hands. And it's like, and we just leave them on the shelf, you know? I'm like, oh my gosh, it's like what we are able to hold in our hands and what we're able to give freely and that we don't, that we don't share this word. It's like, what an injustice. It's, it's, it's like if the Constitution had been written, but it had been folded up in someone's trunk and someone's attic forever, and we never knew the ideas of the people that founded this nation, and what they knew and what they had to share. This is what's come to us. <laughs> That's So we're... We're um, kind of going through the same thing that Nephi, you know, went through back in the day when they left Jerusalem. I will prophesy according to the plainness which has been with me from the time I came out of Jerusalem with my father. Behold, my soul delighteth in plainness unto my people that they may learn. And as you said, that was the... The beautiful thing is learning who God is and coming how to come into relationship with Him according to plainness. Yeah, we we love to uh, the scriptures say because of the simpleness of the way they stumbled. You know, we we, we like to probably move up into that. What side did you say the Hebrew? Yeah, that's the, where we think it's at, right? Yeah, yeah, the secret. We want the deep stuff. But the the simple thing is. And that's like you said, you said before, if I had more, you know, the guy that wrote the letter, if I had more time, I would have made it shorter. Exactly. It's so hard to yeah. pull out the, to not get blinded by all of the extra, extraneous, you know, all of the extra stuff and miss the major message. And in the church, we have to always remember the major message is my heart has to be cleansed through the mercy of Jesus. And I have to have my sins washed away and feel clean and, you know. When I'm clean, I have the love that God has intended for me. I, not only do I feel it, I want to express it to others. That's that's the simple thing is we're told we have to love like Jesus Christ, and we can't do it under our own power. It comes through being cleansed and forgiven, and that comes through being obedient and submitting and desiring that state. We, we had a sermon a couple of weeks ago. And my good friend's dad preached, and he said, what kind of— or do you have the relationship you want with Jesus Christ? And people say, no, no, I want more. And he said, no, you have exactly the relationship you want with Jesus Christ. And and we always would say, no, I want it better, better. Well, well, you have exactly what you want right now. If you wanted more, he would give you more. Wow, that's beautiful. It goes back to the 
Yeah, C.S. Yeah. Lewis quote of the the doors to hell are locked from the inside. Yeah, the people that are there got exactly what they wanted. Yeah, it's it, and my comment might sound kind of strange where I said that's beautiful, but it's beautiful to think we can have as much as we want. You know, in that sense that we might be limited by our own desires of what we have, but yet he said, "My arm is outstretched to you." Mm. Right? You know, it's it's there. Well, well this. I had never seen that come out before well, in Second Nephi 11. So what I wanted to say is, and I'm sorry to announce that we're probably getting ready to wind this session down, but we're going to continue in Second Nephi 11 because Nephi's thesis through this whole section is, I'm speaking to you very plainly. I'm going to tell you the important things you need to know. And this is the story about us, and this is the story about Christ, and this is the story about how his people come back. What Enos was praying for, it, it, it's all told here in Second Nephi 11, and this is what we're going to go through next next time we get together. Well, good. I can't wait. My favorite things, Corey, are when we open the Word and it, things just jump out that are plain, and hopefully we can keep those on our, our hearts and our minds. Hey, it's been really good to be back in the studio and <laughs> to remember how to set up the computer and push all the right buttons and just to um, bring conversation to our friends. Hey, by the way, we thank you for all of you that have reached out through email and messages and letting us know that you're involved and that this is a blessing to you and that we've become like friends to you. I can't wait till we meet face to face someday, but let's keep discussing in casual conversation, those things of eternity that they may always be on our hearts and our minds. And while you're having that great conversation in Christ, just remember, we're all just walking each other home. <laughs> Till next time, God bless. And